Quantum computing is such a buzzword now, and everyone is talking about it for what it might be able to do decades off in the future. And while these futuristic conversations about quantum computing are interesting and inspiring, they are not realistic. Because before we get to this point where quantum computing can accomplish all of these crazy feats, we first need to solve all of the technical problems that limit the large-scale adoption of quantum computing. And trust me, there are a lot of technical problems. So decoherence, low malleability, and extremely cold temperatures that quantum computers operate at, these are all examples of these massive technical problems that must be solved before we can even think about quantum computers taking over the world. So in this episode of the Luminexus podcast, we talk with Nick Johnson, a trapped ion physicist and quantum engineer at Riverlane, about the problem of scaling quantum computing and these super hard technical problems that come with quantum computing. So here is the episode with me, Rachel Lee, my co-host, Sierra Sijor, and trapped ion physicist, Nick Johnson. Enjoy. Awesome. Okay, so thank you so much for being here, Nick. Sierra and I have been super excited for this conversation today. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I'm excited too. Yeah. So I think I wanted to start with kind of all of this hype that we're seeing around quantum computing. There's a lot more media being out saying that quantum computing will solve climate change and unlock the true power of batteries and like all of these really audacious things, which seem really far in the future. And I think despite all this hype, like people aren't really talking about, it's like, hey, quantum computers aren't even there yet. You know, there's a lot of of these technical barriers that we need to overcome to accomplish all of these crazy feats, like, you know, solving climate change and all of these things Mm -hmm. that we're talking about. So in this conversation, we're going to focus on the scalability aspect of quantum computing and how we can scale that up. So I think I'd like to start kind of with this question by understanding why is it so hard to scale up a quantum computer? What are these barriers that limit the large-scale adoption of quantum computing? Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, yeah, I'd probably like to start by saying you're absolutely right. I mean, there is a lot of hype at the moment, and I think it's, it's good and bad hype because I think there's a lot of hope, people hoping to you know, get to grips with climate change, uh, deal with material science, you know, things like new spacecraft. So there's a lot of things to be excited about. I think we just need to be careful. We need to think about things like how quickly maybe we can get there. And definitely these issues of scaling, that's a big problem in quantum computing. So yeah, so probably to tackle that one then, it's fair to say that, you know, everything begins with qubits in a quantum computer. And even though you might have like a terabyte hard drive, you know, a normal hard drive, that's a lot of bits inside a terabyte, right? It's 10 to the 12. But qubits are not quite like ordinary classical bits. They're very, very fragile. They're incredibly fragile. And we probably need millions of these qubits to do some practical computing. So the analogy I like to use is a little bit like a spinning plate analogy. So a single qubit is like a single plate. You're trying to spin it on top of a pole. uh, And it takes a certain amount of work to keep that thing spinning. Um, It's quite hard work. It's double the work when you have two. Just imagine having a million of these things. 
Um, it's quite, you know, it's quite a big deal. It's all possible, but I think this, you know, the scaling problem is something that gets solved by this business of quantum error correction, which I think quantum error correction itself is almost like a magical discovery. So in the early days, people were really arguing whether it was even possible to build a quantum computer at all. People like John Preskill and others discovered, you know, error correction. It was really a thing. So, I mean, just the same way that a normal computer needs error correction, although it's fair to say that they're so reliable, your kind of typical computers, even your laptops, you know, the error rates are very, very low, but some form of error correction can still go on. It's a much, much bigger deal for quantum computers. And I guess, you know, the kind of things that are going to cause errors in a quantum computer would be stray fields, electric fields, magnetic fields, things which are quite hard to control, the coming and going of electrons, you know, noise on a small level, even things like cosmic rays, you know, where a very high energy particle would hit the atmosphere, showers us with all these charged particles getting into your hard drive, and that kind of thing can be a, a big, big problem. We're extremely lucky, and we do have quantum error correction, but I think when you consider the number of qubits involved, you really want to spread a single qubit over many, many, many physical qubits. And this is where you build up your qubits, actually not from like a single atom, say, or a single photon, but from maybe a hundred thousand atoms or maybe a million atoms. So that's probably the biggest challenge. How do we get to a million qubits? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I, I love the quantum error correction. That was something that I mm -hmm. wanted to touch on. And kind of in that same realm is, I think, one of the more widely known errors with quantum computing that's, you know, limits the scalability is decoherence, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what has been, have you seen any, is there really promising research or some studies that have been done with how can we actually prevent decoherence or mitigate it a lot? Yeah, so yeah, really good question. Um, there are definitely some schemes to tackle uh, decoherence. There are some schemes where you can take a qubit and if you send certain pulses towards that qubit, could be microwave pulses, could be laser pulses, you can actually extend the coherence time of a qubit. So for example, for some atoms, you can have a coherence time of you know, maybe hundreds of milliseconds or something like that. Probably that coherence time which is the time scale over which like the quantumness is lost from your qubit is not really the most crucial thing. What really matters is you want to do logic gates. You want to do some calculations. So you really want to do some kind of logic gates, a little bit like digital logic gates where you have AND gates and NOR gates and all this kind of thing. And if you can squeeze as many of those in as possible within the coherence time, then you're still doing well. You're doing pretty good. You know, ideally you want to get thousands of those in. So if your gates are very, very fast, um, you know, if your gates are nanoseconds or, or hundreds of nanoseconds, you can, you can squeeze many of those in, you know, over, over a millisecond, say. Um, but you still have to deal with this problem of decoherence. It kind of means that your qubit has to be reset every now and then. Yeah, so what they, the, the technical term for this is you can do what's called continuous decoupling. So you can send these decoupling pulses towards the qubit. And I think it's possible to extend the life of a qubit, you know, by something like, maybe a factor of 10 or so using these techniques. I think researchers are used to doing that as well. So if you imagine running an algorithm or running a computation, you do some algorithmic stuff, like you'd run some gates, and then you'd take a bit of a pause in between those signals, 
and you'd interleave some more signals, which would be these decoupling pulses. And with a little bit of luck, I think we can probably extend qubit coherence times by factors of a few, which is really helpful. I mean, it's you can imagine this is the spinning plate analogy again. Your plates are kind of falling off and you don't want your plates to smash on the floor. So you've really got to keep on top of it. But if you can keep that plate spinning by you know, 10 times longer, then it's really going to be put to good use. Is that enough, like by 10 times, if we can like decouple qubits by or like extend their life by that long? Or how much do they need to be extended by to almost solve decoherence? I don't know if that's even yeah. possible, but. I think for the, the whole point of error correction, if you really want to run some of these error correcting codes, is to tackle the problem of decoherence. So in an ideal world, you would never decohere. Mm -hmm. so, so like I said, you really have to spread your qubit over many, many you actually build up a logical qubit by spreading the state, you know, the quantum state over many, many, possibly as much as a million physical qubits. But if you could do that perfectly, or if you could do that very, very well, you could possibly, you know, keep a qubit alive for a very, very long time. And if you can do it ideally, you could possibly keep the qubit alive indefinitely. So, yeah, so that's really what error correction is about. How can we tackle this problem? And it's, it's a very difficult problem. I mean, if you think about the error rate, within a large scale quantum computer, which nobody's been able to build yet, but a large scale quantum computer with let's say a million qubits, you're looking at errors cropping up, millions of errors every millisecond. To, correct like to put that into context, sorry, like just for people listening, how does that relate mm. to like a classical computer? So like the device that they're using, what would the error rates on that be? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I'm not entirely sure how many errors you would get uh, mm. per bit in a in a normal computer, but it's really, I mean, these, this technology has been honed, doesn't it, over decades and decades, maybe as low as like one error in, you know, one part in billions or something like that. Yeah, so it's many, many times better. And the hope is that as the technology improves, we get better with quantum computers as well. Will we approach kind of reliability of modern computers? Well, eventually I think we probably will. The technology will just improve things that we find almost impossible to do nowadays, you know, we just need to solve those problems. You know, I work at River Lane and the company is all about error correction. And they like to quote this one fact about maybe how much data you'd have to process to do this kind of error correction where you're having so many errors cropping up. And it's something like the total global streaming data rate of Netflix across the whole world processed every second in a, in a large scale quantum computer. So this is a huge task. It's a huge task, even for sort of the conventional processing that would go along with this stuff, just your normal hardware doing classical processing alongside it. Because probably you'd have a co-processor, like maybe like an FPGA or some very powerful chip. And so there's a lot of processing that needs to be done because there's so much data flying around in a, you know, when you've got a million qubits or something like that. Yeah, and we, we've talked about tech technological innovations um, helping with some of these issues and hopefully being able to mitigate and prevent them. But another issue we're currently seeing with quantum computers is cost. You know, they're, they're super expensive, definitely more expensive than class, classical computers to like, you know, build and maintain. And kind of wondering what actually makes them so expensive? And is there any way we can decrease these costs of any types of innovations or anything? Yeah, I mean, really good question. I think it's almost like um, when we think about quantum computers versus ordinary computers, we're really, we're, we're almost comparing like, you know, the quantum computer is like a laser 
versus an ordinary computer is like a light bulb. So if you, if you kind of want to light your house or do a relatively simple task, you really want to be using maybe just a normal powerful supercomputer or something. Um, but when it comes to those specific tasks, you got to bring the laser in. So you, so you want to rely on that quantum computer with the quantum speed up that it can produce. Um, and it's probably a good time to say that, you know, the quantum computers don't, can't tackle every possible problem um, with a quantum speed up, certainly not with an exponential, you know, a very good quantum speed up. There are some problems which really there's, there's a marginal increase in speed. But luckily, I think, you know, some of these big problems, these big um, issues possibly related to things like climate modeling, where there's a lot, a lot of complexity. Luckily, quantum computers are good at those kind of data processing tasks. What makes them expensive? Well, at the moment, if you take something like superconducting machine, so your superconducting qubits have to be well, well down into the sort of micro Kelvin temperature range. So they have to be cooled to ridiculously cold temperatures. The technology for that is pretty expensive. They use a dilution refrigerator. So it looks like this huge sort of circular barrel. And inside there is, that's where you put your, your chip at the very bottom. And there are many, many stages of cooling to, you know, to get down to those micro Kelvin temperatures. Uh, even the control electronics at the moment, um, especially if you're dealing with things like microwaves to control um, superconducting qubits. Uh, it's all pretty cutting edge stuff. Um, probably the biggest cost is the cost of the, to pay the salaries for the, um, you know, for the scientists who are running these things. So it's, you know, it's all resources that you need to, to pay for. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Like a lot of people might be listening to this and maybe like, well, why are we even going to bother building you know, these perfect quantum computers, sorry, quantum computers, why don't we just, you know, stick with classical if there's so much money and time and effort that goes into it. So like, what do you think the answer to that question kind of is, you know, it's like, why are we pouring all of this resources into quantum? Like, what is the hope, like not, not the hype, but the actual like hope of what quantum computers can do that is so different than classical computers that we're willing to put this much into it. Uh, yeah, totally. So, I mean, I, it's fair to say there are some problems that will never be solved um, with classical computers. So I think, what I mean, if, if you compare the, the speed of the world's best supercomputer at the minute, I think we're on something like half an exaflop of computing power. So, I mean, this is, you know, 500 petaflops or so of compute. So it's something like is that 10 to the 12 operations per second? It's a crazy number. And it's hard to believe that a computer of that power just wouldn't be able to tackle some problems. But some of these issues really do just explode in complexity. It takes many, many steps to, to try and solve them. So maybe to give you an example, one of the, one of the most well-known ones is this traveling salesman problem, which is like an ancient problem where you imagine, imagine you're a salesperson and you want to jump in your car and you want to travel between uh, a number of cities. So, you know, if it's a small number of cities, say just three, you want to get around those cities back to your starting point in the shortest time. Another way to phrase it is you want to find a route between those cities on your one tank of fuel in your car. And then we just imagine growing those numbers of cities. So what if, what if there's four cities that you need to visit? What if there's five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? 
surprisingly, if you get to 10 cities, the number of possible combinations that you need to work out to kind of draw those lines between cities and work out the shortest route is something like 3.6 million different combinations there, just with 10 cities. And I think it goes up to like 40 million with 11 cities, and then it just grows and grows and grows. So you can imagine what if you have 100 cities, and it's just not possible to calculate 100 cities with that brute force calculation method that a supercomputer would try and use. To some extent, this is relevant to the planning of, you know, when you go on Google Maps and you're trying to get directions, there's a few tricks that you can try and do to optimize that problem. But at the end of the day, even with a normal classical computer, you're never, ever actually going to be able to go through every single option. Uh, it would just take too much time. And even though computers get better and better every year, you know, Moore's law tells us that the, the compute power or number of transistors per chip or so doubles every couple of years. It's just not a fast enough rate to ever get us to be able to solve some of those really big problems. And, you know, traveling salesman is one good example. Um, but within that same category of problem, you can probably think of things like protein folding. And apparently proteins that go wrong in the body are responsible for diseases such as Alzheimer's, dementia, certain forms of cancer. I know there's been a lot of success with artificial intelligence, trying to cut through, cut down the number of combinations and do some machine learning, which has been really, I think is really, really a good technique. Um, but if you, wanna, if you want to solve these things exactly, you know, and crunch through the numbers. And then I think a conventional computer will just never be able to do it. Uh, it's one of the most exciting things I found about quantum computing to do, you know, not just things like code cracking, but to actually do computational chemistry. Some people say quantum computers would solve the entire problem of chemistry just, you know, by calculating the answers to, to these kind of problems. If you could do drug discovery, you know, for new cures for diseases, by literally modeling the environment of the gut, human guts, say, trying to work out how the, you know, how the medicines interact. I think that'd be absolutely fantastic. And you could go from a situation where doing clinical trials, or maybe there could be a mix where we do simulation that's just not possible nowadays, where we can really root out, you know, those potential molecules that are just not going to work on those ones which have a really good chance of potentially saving somebody's life. And that's not to mention, you know, new materials for aerospace applications. I'm particularly ex excited about, you know, companies like SpaceX trying to get to Mars, potential new rockets with materials that can withstand high temperatures, all this kind of stuff requires modeling of, you know, modeling down at the atomic and molecular level. And that's just impossible to do at the moment. The, I think the exciting thing is that you take a quantum system, such as an atom, or even a photon, and you're using those quantum systems to model other quantum systems. So it's extremely powerful because I, I think of it as like you're, you're kind of fighting fire with fire. You know, you're not just using any old technique. You're using the very same molecules and atoms that you want to understand actually to do calculations. So the benefits, I think, will be huge. They'll be revolutionary. And, I, you know, I get, I get pretty excited about it. I work in the field. And I definitely want to see it. But I think it's a big challenge and we've got to be just mindful of how long it might take to build up to something like a million qubit system. I'm really excited when you see these papers that come out by groups, like some that have relatively recently come out where we've, we've built a logical qubit. So we've been able to do, you know, the very, very smallest building blocks of error correction and prove that it works. 
We've spread the kind of power of a qubit over many, many atoms. Although in these demonstrations, it's something like, you know, you've got to start off small. It's, it's been demonstrated with something like 13 atoms in a logical qubit. And if you can actually show that by doing that, the error rate goes down compared to just a single qubit. So you've improved things by running your quantum error correction code. Uh, then you're, you're beginning to see progress. And that's actually happened just in the last couple of years, which I find really, really exciting. Question is, how do we go from 13 qubits or so up to, you know, 100 and then 1,000 then, and then a million? That's the outstanding challenge, I think, of the field. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. All these innovations, really, really exciting. You bring up many, many good life-changing life things that can happen when, when we really utilize quantum. But I'm very curious to hear how Riverlane is actually helping bring this hype out to life. I know you guys are taking more of a software approach. So there's definitely a difference yep. compared to other quantum companies. So I would love to get your perspective on that. Okay, right. Well, no pressure then, because I do, I do work at Riverlane. Yeah, I think it's, it's fair to say that Riverlane is, is very much focused on large-scale fault-tolerant quantum computing. So this is the kind of um, quantum computer which is truly useful. It's going to be useful to crack some of these big problems that we need to solve. And I think without error correction, it just won't be possible. So yeah, Riverlane is laser focused on that. And it has world experts working there who are experts in quantum error correction. Personally, it's not my field, actually. I, I'm a control engineer, so I'm focused on quantum control. My background actually was in a, in a physics lab, you know, do my PhD and postdoc looking at some of these technologies, which could offer us a potential route to scale up. Yeah, but in order to scale up to those very, very large numbers, you do need error correction. And that's what Riverlane's you know, really about. I guess it's fair to say the other side of Riverlane's sort of research and contribution to research and development is the problem of control. How do you actually control these qubits? And when I was in the lab, there were very many home-built control systems. So these are the electronics. How do we generate the pulses? You know, for me, it was trapped ions. So I was interested in laser pulses, microwave pulses. That's what can actually control the qubits and get them to do the computations. But as a PhD student, you're very used to building these things yourselves. It takes a certain amount of time to learn, you know, how can you program up these systems? And when they're home built, they're maybe not perfect, maybe not well optimized, because certainly as a PhD student and a postdoc, I would just do my best to build the best I could. But I was a physicist, you know, I wasn't an engineer and certainly wasn't an FPGA engineer with some of these very high-tech chips. So Riverlane has actually got many, many FPGA engineers, physicists like myself, and then the error correction experts. To, it's a melting pot, really, that brings those people together to tackle these big problems. And I think a really good first step would be to have a professionally made, a very thoughtfully designed control system that can improve the quality of qubits so that every single qubit is as high quality as possible. So you minimize the error rate that you actually get. And if you can keep the error rates lower, then you need fewer qubits per, per logical qubit doing your error correcting code. And fewer qubits is better because you know it's going to be very hard to get to a million. Let's try and get that down to maybe a thousand and just see how easy it is to get there. Yeah, no, 100%. And I'm glad that you men mentioned uh, like trapped ion computing, which is something that okay. I wanted to talk about since that's what you work in. And I think that, so first, maybe let's start off at the beginning where it's like, yes. what kind of separates trapped ion computing from sort of regular different kinds of mm -hmm. quantum computing? Kind of what makes it different? And also, why is it gaining 
a little bit more maybe attention now and a bit more research is being put into trapped ion? Like what are the differences between that? Yeah, definitely. Well, I'm a huge fan of trapped ions because that was my, that's the way, the way I did my PhD. I probably shouldn't show too much favoritism because I think it will take, you know, many different types. And when I speak to some of the researchers in the field, we kind of agree that maybe the future will be a hybrid approach. Yeah, but trapped ions, they certainly have a, well, they're atoms, basically. And when I was in my lab, I used ytterbium, which is an atom you may, may never have heard of. But interestingly, it's one of these atoms which is named after a village in Sweden called Itterby. And apparently there's four elements named after that village where these kind of substances were originally found. That's really cool. (laughs) Pretty famous on the periodic table. Yeah, but I use deuterium, but there's, you know, there's different atoms that can be used. You can use calcium, strontium, you know, there's a long list and they all have their benefits. Fundamentally, what you want to do is you want to build a qubit. And that basically means you have two levels. So you have a zero and a one level, you know, very much like a classical bit. But we know that the differences that you get this infinite number of almost like ghost states in between. That's a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah, all these states, which is it's very strange because when you measure a qubit, you'll only ever get a zero and a one. So it's, you know, it's impossible to actually truly measure those in-between states. But yeah, the qubit can be a zero and a one at the same time, which is something that a normal bit, like a transistor, a transistor would be an ordinary bit in your hard drive also. There's no chance it can be in two states at once. Um, yeah, and that's yeah, kind of like the magic of quantum computing is the fact that it can be in all of these states. And that's just for people listening. That's why we can yeah. do all these crazy feats that we're talking about, right? Is because of all of these, as you so perfectly said, Nick, all of these, you know, ghost states, which then gives us so many more possibilities to basically do cool things with <laughs> quantum computing. There's a lot of cool things you can do. That's right. And there's, I mean, there's an infinite number of states in between. So the two things that you really need to do your quantum computing is that superposition of states where the where the atom or the um, you know the superconductor is in that two states at once but you also need quantum entanglement which is this other weird behavior there's a lot of weird behavior in quantum it's fair to say but entanglement is a particularly powerful property it's basically a case where you have two qubits or two quantum objects but they behave as if they're one and they're totally inseparable you can literally take those two qubits and put one on Mars and keep one here on Earth. Um, but what you do to one qubit will instantly be reflected in a you know, correlation in the other qubit. So they do act as if they're one kind of combined quantum object. And that's purely a quantum thing that just doesn't happen in the classical world. And it just so happens that that feature allows us to take these shortcuts through some of these very unwieldy calculations and get to the answer much quicker. It's superposition and entanglement, uh, which you need. Uh, and yeah. you can do that with trapped ions, definitely. Yeah, uh, you can home in on the on two electronic states within the atom. The good thing about an atom is that you know all atoms are identical. Uh, you don't need to build an atom, although it's fair to say you do need to trap an atom, and that takes a lot of effort. But once you get them, they're all like identical twins, triplets, whatever. And you need you, you need to be careful with the environment that you're in. You don't want stray electric and magnetic fields which could possibly change those qubit states. But if you can, if you can shield the experiment from you know, too much magnetism and so on, then you can really have identical qubits, which is, which is a really good thing. If you compare it to some of the manufactured qubits like superdu- superconducting qubits, 
they'll have different properties because you, you really need to make these. You need to microfabricate these, these things. But the techniques for fabricating them are very, very, very good um, after very, very low tolerances. So I think the other thing about trapped ions is that they can be readily controlled by lasers. So what you need is a vacuum system, first of all, for the atoms to go inside because you want to suck all the air out. You don't want any more atoms bouncing around inside there. And then on this vacuum system, you need windows, literally glass windows. And that's where you fire your lasers into the system, you know, to try and get some calculations done. It's also possible to use microwaves. So a microwave is a much more broader way to address many, many qubits at once as well. And they're much, much easier to produce, you know, microwave radiation with an antenna compared to lasers. What I did on my PhD was actually take two of these quantum chips trapped ion chips and the ions actually hover about the width of a human hair above the chips. In order to scale, we just wanted to start by taking two of them and literally tiling them together, a little bit like a jigsaw piece, a little bit like, you know, tiling your bathroom floor or something like that. And by putting them together, you can actually shuttle and move these ions across from one to the other. Even though there is a very small gap of a few micrometers, that's no problem at all. You can move the qubit from, from one chip to another. And even though we, I only demonstrated two, during my research with the team there at Sussex University. In principle, you could do three, four, five, six, an arbitrary number, these chips, and just go really big, you know, imagine a tiled surface the size of something like a dinner table or something full of these chips, or even bigger than that. And that's one way potentially that you could scale up this technology within a lab or within a research lab, and maybe get thousands or maybe millions of qubits which is, you know, the aim of the game, I think, as quickly as possible. Let's try and get to just as many qubits as we can. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. And um, as we wrap up here, I would love to get some more insight into, like, you know, the type of skills you actually need to be able to study these fields and understand these concepts. So I know you, I think, mentioned earlier, like some physics and studying that maybe in university or whatever, but what kind of other skills are needed, do you think, to actually understand this field and create contributions in the space? I think quantum computing is a really nice mix of computer science and mathematics and physics all combined into one. So all of those skills, you know, especially when it comes to programming as well, understanding the fundamentals of uh, even just how classical computers are built is a very good start. And then if you're very good at maths, that's always going to stand you in good stead, isn't it? I think no matter what your career, but definitely, you know, maths is a very strong component of quantum computing and physics. Yeah, my background was physics. And so when it comes to trapped ions, it was, there's very much a heavy focus on atomic physics. But, you know, superconducting technology as well, there's a huge focus on physics there with, you know, the way superconductors work. And engineering as well, I think we're into this stage where this is, this is more than just a theoretical technology. We're seeing some, some very nice big breakthroughs. There's so much scope for engineers of all backgrounds to get involved in quantum computing now. I mean, I think we really need the, the skills of engineers who can work with computers, chips, you know, FPGA engineers, cryogenic engineers. What's that? What's, what's a cryogenic well, engineer? Cryogenic engineers, you, you're going to build, you know, really cold refrigerators, get down to those cryogenic temperatures. Quantum um, definitely needs that, huh? <laughs> it just seems, you know, the colder you go, the better, really. Yeah, um, And I think people starting out, either in education at the moment, they're wondering which way to go. Definitely maths and physics and computer science are some good skills. I think somebody also who maybe 
looking to change career or broaden their career, if, if they're already an engineer, whether that's a computer engineer or an electronic engineer, there's or we even need the people to work in um, people management, managers for teams and marketing and all this stuff. It's it's a field which is really, really growing. And there's, you know, there's all sorts of opportunities for people to get involved, even if there's no background in quantum. Yeah. Do you know what? I share your same passion and excitement for <laughs> quantum, Nick. I find it so fascinating and yeah, I'm excited by it. This is a bit more of a fun question. I think it was Neil Bohr who said that, I believe you can correct me. I think it was Neil Bohr. And he said, anybody who thinks that they understand quantum computing really doesn't. <laughs> so do you think that you really understand it or is there or is there always going to be things that, you know what, that's just quantum physics. Humans will never fully understand that. It's a fantastic quote. And it's, I think some of us, we really understand our little niche. You know, we really go deep into our areas and really doesn't mean that we know much about anything else outside of those areas sometimes. <laughs> And, and it takes a lot of people with a lot of niches, you know, to make this kind of subject work. It's a fantastic quote because it's absolutely true. I think there's a lot of, you know, secrets that quantum mechanics is still giving up. I'm always and I think that's why that. people are so scared of it as well. You know, I feel like whenever yeah. I mention to quantum computing to people who don't know that much about it, it's suddenly almost like this mental block of, oh, it's too complex, you know, too confusing. Yeah. And I think actually what... Weirdly, when it comes to quantum computing, the mathematics, you know, the fundamentals of quantum computing is relatively simple. It comes down to linear algebra, which may not, may not sound simple. But I, I think I said to my professor when I joined uh, on the PhD, I really want to learn quantum field theory and all this stuff. And he said, Nick, you know, to be honest, you don't need, you don't need to know that. You know, there's certain things you need to know. And because we're looking at qubits that have these two states, it's obviously a complex area. I think you can get away with a, a certain focused amount of maths that are very relevant to the subject. Uh, it's very elegant. It's surprisingly simple in a way. But yeah, I think quantum mechanics more broadly, maybe you know we'll learn a little bit more about what quantum mechanics even is by building a quantum computer. Because we talk about some of these applications to materials and medicine and climate change. You know, one of the biggest applications is also just to do pure science, just to work out what's going on at the quantum level in the quantum realm, if I'm allowed to use that phrase. And by building a quantum computer, you're really harnessing what's going on between quantum particles. So you really need to understand that in order to be able to control it. And I think there's going to be a lot of insights that, that we get just by building these medium scale devices, you know, before we get to millions of qubits. We're going to have to get to hundreds first. And those devices are being built right now. I mean, IBM released a 400 qubit superconducting chip. There's many, many startups at the moment. So in Iron Traps, we have Iron Q, and they're building trapped ion quantum computers. There's, there's many in different fields. I think photonic quantum computers. Orca in the UK is a startup. And one of the benefits of photonic quantum computing is you don't necessarily need a vacuum system all this sort of stainless steel and vacuum technology. So maybe that will help to scale up. But we're really, I think, just by building these devices, there's no way to avoid 
developing a better and better and better understanding of quantum mechanics, which to me is also very exciting. I feel like I'm a little bit more of a hands-on applied scientist, but I'm always endlessly fascinated to find out about, you know, more and more discoveries in quantum physics. Yes, this is a truly fascinating field, and we've definitely brought up a lot of those different aspects of the field and conversation that make it so complex, but also very, very interesting and exciting at the same time. And so as we wrap up here, I would love to just ask one of our favorite questions to ask on the podcast, more of a philosophical question. So if you had a magic wand, and this magic wand gave you the power to change or improve anything in the world with the flick of your wrist, what, what was the one thing that you would change or improve about the world? Oh, nice. Okay. Is this about the world in general? We... It can be anything that you want, honestly. I mean, it could be something in quantum, something about technical barriers. It could be, yeah, anything under the sun. <laughs> okay. I think it would be amazing to, you know, democratize education, to get it out there to everybody. Because one of my favorite quotes is that talent is evenly distributed across the world, but opportunity is not. So depending on where you're born, which country you're born in, which part of the world, you may you, you may never have the chance to use your incredible gifts, your talents that you, you're born with. I think that's such a shame. You know, I consider myself very lucky to have the chance to go to university and to do a PhD. There's many, many much more clever people out there than me who sadly, you know, may not get the chance. So I think if I could wave a magic wand, I would bring, you know, that kind of level of education or at least opportunity to anybody who wants to pursue it because if we, if we could really get everybody who is motivated to study whether it be science or you know whatever their talents take them and we allow them to engage you know themselves without having to struggle you know through life or whatever their personal situation is then that would be that would be many people all over the world working on some pretty big important problems and putting their talents to an amazing use and I'm pretty sure the world would change you know for the better because of that. I love that so much. And that <laughs> is such an important thing. And it applies to so many, so many things. So that's very important. Love that answer so much. And Nick, it was so exciting and so great to have you on the podcast today. We talked about everything from, you know, how hard it is to scale up quantum, some of the challenges that come with it, like, you know, error correction being a big one, some of the promising research behind preventing or mitigating decoherence, the cost of quantum computing and one of those biggest cost drivers and stuff like that, Riverlane and kind of the stuff they're doing, trapped ions versus other quantum computing, some of the skills you need to actually get into the field. And, and so much more. And this was just an incredible conversation. And so, so happy to have you on. So many insights taken from the conversation for sure. Well, thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.